the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Show and I am Robert Simuk filling in for Dave this Monday morning. Still dark outside, folks. Today is the last day of my week plus long run in filling in for Dave. He is on his way back from Florida as we speak. You and I both are so terribly glad. This is hard work, folks. I got to tell you, Dave does this every day of the week, three hours a day, and I think he also does some on Saturdays. It's really remarkable. I want to thank him now, and hopefully I'll remember to do so at the end of the show as well, uh, for trusting me to handle his show because he has a precious relationship with you, the listeners, here on 101.1 FM, The Answer, and I appreciate him trusting me to uh, handle that during his absence I certainly was not his replacement. I could never be so, but hopefully I served as a sufficient proxy or facsimile during this time. Folks, we've got a lot to talk about, as we always do. Have you heard about this controversy that happened to a professor who's teaching about linguistic issues? And he he was talking about how people have this tendency to put in verbal pauses, What's a verbal pause? Verbal pause is when you hear someone talking, they go, uh, 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 or that, 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 that type of thing. So he describes how this exists cross-culturally, cross-nationally. And he describes how in Chinese, there's the word for that, apparently. And it sounds similar to, not identical, but similar to the N-word. And so he does, he says that, 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 like that, but in Chinese, with a word that sounds similar to, but not identical to, the N-word. And boy, did the Shinola hit the fan. Now, remember, he, A, he didn't say the N-word. He said a word that sounds similar to the N-word, And B, he had no intention of saying any word that is in any way discriminatory. And the word he actually said is the word that in Chinese. So let me read you a a slightly more detailed. Did you notice I put a little verbal pause in there? A slightly more detailed description of what occurred. And but more importantly, I want to get to sort of the outcome. Uh, because at the outcome is really the remarkable part of this. The reaction 
is the remarkable uh, par- part of this. So the article from which I'm reading, I, I pick up somewhere in the middle, and it says, when a video of, his name is Patton, when a video of Patton saying the word was posted online, the general reaction was an outrage at Patton, but bafflement at how what he said could have prompted his ouster. I need to tell you, I'm sorry, that they they put him on leave. They actually put this guy, he's a professor of uh, clinical business communication and they put him on leave how do you put someone on leave for saying the word that it's really remarkable so it goes on to say when a video of Patton saying the word was posted online the general reaction wasn't outrage at Patton by the way of course it wasn't but bafflement at how what he said could have prompted his ouster as the story made its way into the Chinese news media and onto, and onto the social network Weibo, it was met with disbelief and anger. A letter signed by more than 100 mostly Chinese alumni of the business school avers, avers that the, quote, spurious charge has the additional feature of casting insult toward the Chinese language, end quote. Later on the Instagram account, black-at-usc, which is devoted to documenting instances of racial bias at the university, opposed to accuse the administration of using patent as a uh, quote as a scapegoat so that they don't have to address the true issues we've been facing end quote. That post has more than 2000 likes. The university's response became fodder for Fox news, the Chinese communist party newspaper, global times, and the daily show with <clears throat> Trevor Noah, not to mention a timeline full of Twitter pundits who already take a dim view of aggrieved college students. Me amongst them, by the way. And the whole incident has become a strange sideshow at a moment of national reckoning on race, while also offering a case study in how the handling of a student complaint can lead to consequences far beyond the classroom. Whether Patton deserved to be removed, he did not, by the way, or was the target of overzealous students aided by an oversensitive administration, that's the right uh, description, indeed. Speaks to questions r- roiling other campuses. Was this a serious misstep, an international provocation, excuse me, an intentional provocation, or a minor misunderstanding reframed as racist? When is an apology not enough? He did apologize, by the way. At the center of the saga is a veteran professor who never imagined an example he'd used for years without incident would get him booted for from a course he helped build and perhaps prevent him from teaching again in the business's flag school, flagship MBA program. While Patton says he does genuinely feel bad. Uh, I'm sorry. The screen just uh, blipped. Uh, while Patton says he does genuinely feel bad that the example has caused such disruption. He's heard from Chinese students who don't think he should have expressed remorse. Quote, if there's a complaint I'm getting, it's that I apologize and I shouldn't have, he says. He still struggles to understand how what he said could have been interpreted as laced with ill intent, as if, the, as if he were sneaking in a slur. Quote, I'm not springing it on them. Quote, he says, I'm talking in an international context. I'm specifically talking about China and the language most commonly spoken in the world. I want to come back, by the way, folks, to the point about intent. Patton doesn't believe he'll be able to teach in the full-time MBA program anytime soon. Isn't that remarkable? I'm going to repeat that. Patton doesn't believe he'll be able to teach in the full-time MBA program 
anytime soon. There's concern at the business school that the students who complained might object to his teaching the communication course next fall or any other course for that matter. So those who bang their cups against the bars determine the outcome. Right, folks? I mean, think about this. Those who complain that he said the word that in Chinese will dictate to the university, obviously run by leftist academics, as virtually all universities are. So they bow down to the false god of neo-Marxism and identity politics and, and operate under a scheme, under a philosophy, under an idea, under a moral code that says the ends justify the means. And what are those ends, to be clear? They will tell you, well, the ends are, it's for the good of the university. Right? Remember this. It's the exact same language used by the communists with one word change. Not good of the university. What is it? Wait for it, folks. Good of the party. Right? So it's good of the party. And what does the good of the party always seem to coincide with? The good of those few rich powerful folks in charge of the party. They're rich because they're in charge of the party, right? They, they collect the taxes. They keep the money. Well, it's for the good of the party. It's for the good of university. You are ousted. Much like Stalin ousted people from history, literally having them erased from history books. And back then, that was a bigger operation. Today, you can use technology and take someone out of a photograph. Back then, they would by hand take human beings out of photographs and put in bushes and other fake um, imagery. So it's for the good of the party, for the good of the university. And needless to say, those who are claiming it's for that good are the leftist administrators. And those who are punished are those who are trying to teach. And many of nah, many is a bit of an exaggeration, frankly, but some of them are conservatives because there ain't no conservatives in the administration, but there's still a few of us left in academia. And so uh, watch out when conservatives say, well, tenure is just a means to keep uh, incompetent liberals in their jobs. No, incompetent liberals keep incompetent liberals in their jobs or leftists, I should say, for both of those. But the only protection that conservatives have is tenure. And it's a weak protection, by the way, not a strong protection the way it's being enforced, at least. So to finish up the uh, article, uh, an online petition to reinstate Patton has received more than 19,000 signatures. While he wasn't actually placed on leave or reprimanded, Patton does feel that his reputation has yet to be restored and that his ability to teach remains in question. I've used that example for years, and no one said anything to me. I've been going to China for 20 years where I heard it all the time. I never once thought the two words were connected, he says. It's painful because I put a lot of heart and soul into building up that program. And yet the leftists clamoring forced him out of this class currently. And while, as I said, he has yet to be suspended for next year, we'll see. We'll see if they tell him he can't teach that class. Now, I'm hopeful, by the way, that it's not the case. I'm hopeful that, in fact, the administration recognizes that this hoopla was nonsense. But you see, part of it is, and he admits his own error, part
part of it is, is this apologizing by administrators for the activities of professors that are proper and done within their scope of authority. But in this case, the administration, oh, well, we're, we're sorry if people were offended, and we're sorry this, or sorry, sorry about that. We're sorry, 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 sorry. They're just always sorry. And there's nothing wrong. In fact, I encourage people to apologize when they make a mistake. But it's got to be an actual mistake. I'm not sorry if you take offense at my normal statement. No, I'm not sorry about that. I'm sorry that you are a millennial, thin-skinned leftist who is looking to be offended. But of course, I'm using the term sorry in a different sense there. I'm saddened by the fact that we have so many folks who think the state should be taking care of them and who look to be offended and then are so. I'm saddened by that fact, indeed. But that, was a, that relates to the point I said I was going to come back to, and that is intent. The left has been moving to remove the notion of intent from racism. Of course, this is all part of um, Ibram Kendi's book, where he says that racism has nothing to do with intent. Meaning, you don't have to dislike any group to be a racist or for actions to be characterized as racism. They just have to impact a group differently. So, for example, if you give a tax break to business and fewer minorities own businesses than whites, well, that's racist because the impact uh, more positively benefits whites versus minorities. Now, I'm not suggesting we should give a tax break uh, to businesses versus anybody else. I'm not trying to make a discussion at the moment on tax policy. I believe in a simplified tax system, and I believe in spreading tax reduction as broadly as one can do. But to say that giving a tax break to businesses to encourage that business as a policy goal and I'm not, again, I'm not saying it's a good or bad policy, though, is inherently racist because that impacts blacks more than whites, say, by way of example. Well, that's to take the word racist and to explode entirely its meaning. It no longer has any meaning. Right, you All might right, well call Robert, it a, let's continue yep. this thought uh, after this commercial break. Fantastic. Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave Ellswick. Dave has been on vacation, but Dave will be back tomorrow, Tuesday morning. Robert Steinbach is a law professor at the Bowen School of Law at UA Little Rock. His opinions are his and his alone and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of UA Little Rock's Bowen School of Law. We'll be right back after traffic and news. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck. Filling in for Dave, I've done so last week, and I'm doing so today. Today is my last day filling in for him. So tune in the rest of the week, and you'll get to hear Dave again here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. I certainly look forward to that. 
In any event, we uh, pretty much finished up that discussion of how the leftists uh, drummed this professor out of his class, and hopefully he'll get back into it. But it just shows you that leftist ideology is essentially about mob rule and how the ends justify the means. And it's, it's tragic, and we need to be on guard for it because it exists everywhere. It exists here in Arkansas. Now, luckily, our uh, government, state government, that is, is largely Repu- Republican and moving towards a conservative ideology, but not entirely so. And then we have local governments and, and to be clear, state institutions that are still populated by leftists. I saw a video, by the way, the other day of a teacher at Little Rock School District espousing all of this leftist ideology and spewing it out and apologizing. Well, you know, I'm part of the white dominant class or words to that effect, as if one ever has to apologize for his race. If one ever has to be sorry for some immutable characteristic. That's right. That's right. So this is really just a tragic outcome where the neo-Marxists are taking a foothold. And thank goodness we have the president pushing back, telling government entities that they can't be spending taxpayer dollars on this training, this so-called diversity training. There's some perfectly legitimate diversity training, but not what was going on. They were teaching critical race theory, which essentially is racism towards white. It says that whites are at fault for being white. That you, as a white person, inherently benefit from your whiteness. You have white privilege. Doesn't matter if you're poor. Doesn't matter if you come from a broken home. Doesn't matter what your circumstances are. You have white privilege. Yet, often, not always, but often, if someone applies to higher education, applies for a job, and they're white, when compared to certain minorities, they are given, given rather, less consideration, less favor. So is that white privilege, or is that anti-white behavior? Now, my position is the position of the Chief Justice and so many great Americans, I'm not claiming I'm a great American, nor the Chief Justice, I'm not a huge fan, but in any event, my point is that there are many people that share the following view. All discrimination is bad. All discrimination is bad. Don't discriminate against minorities. Don't discriminate against whites. By the way, let me make this point clear too. Don't discriminate against gay people. Now, To be clear, that doesn't mean you need to agree with, for example, gay marriage, nor does it mean that you need to agree. All right, Robert, we need to get to some news. Let's continue that thought after this commercial break. We got to get to some news and traffic and weather right here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this Monday morning at 635 a.m., 
the sun is just peeking up. So we're starting a very nice, cool morning. I just want to finish up my thought from before the break, because I think it's an important point. And it's one that I've discussed many times here on the Dave Ellswick show on 101.1 FM, The Answer. And I think it's an important conversation to have, particularly amongst conservatives, because I have no problem with, and I think conservatives have no problem. In fact, conservatives fully support the notion that themselves or other conservatives can oppose, for example, gay marriage, or can oppose mandating that a photographer has to attend and participate in a wedding, a gay wedding, if he is opposed to gay marriage. Because those are religious liberties. And so we need to understand that one's religious liberties are protected by the First Amendment. By the way, you rarely hear the left describe that part of the First Amendment. There's five protections in the First Amendment, and you only hear the left talk about the protection for free speech and the protection for the press. But you don't hear them talking about the protections for religion. So I have no problem with that, of course. In fact, I endorse the ability of conservatives to exercise their religious beliefs. But I don't think, and I pause to say, I want to say something even stronger. I think it is bad when anybody, including conservatives, discriminate against anybody else, uh, including gays, meaning it's one thing if you don't want to participate because of your religious beliefs, but you shouldn't if you come up upon a gay person uh, in a subway, uh, in a restaurant, in a store. Uh, you shouldn't discriminate against that person uh, because he is gay. And I'm not even and engaging in the debate. Well, that is an immutable characteristic. It's not an immutable characteristic. Those on the left don't see a debate there. I don't care if there's a debate or not. <clears throat> it's not my area of investigation. A, coll- a former colleague of mine whose area it was uh, said, I-, well, I know there's this sort of debate between is it immutable, is it not immutable? And his answer was, I don't know and I don't care. So if that's okay for him, I think I'll adopt that as well. Meaning, It doesn't matter for the purposes of treating human beings as human beings, whether it's immutable or not immutable, you should treat people with kindness. And so I think it's important for us to say that Uh, for the vast majority of conservatives, I think we do exactly that. There are are a few that don't. But by the way, then there there are those on the left that do the same thing. Like you saw that horrific rant, perhaps, by that MSNBC commentator, Joy Reid. She made a terribly anti-gay rant several years ago on her Facebook or one of those social media sites. And then, oh, well, somebody hacked it. And then begrudgingly admitted nobody hacked it. Frankly, I think the latter may be equally as bad, which is just the blatant outright lie that she didn't say it when it turned out, of course, she did say it. So we need to treat all human beings with respect. And then, of course, I get to go, well, what about if you came upon Hitler? You know what? We'll deal with Hitler when we come with Hitler. But this is no Hitler scenario. So when we have, what's it, like several billion people on the planet, uh, you can deal with that uh, outlier. You can count on one hand separately. But otherwise, 
let's try to de- uh, treat people with respect. And let me be clear. I think the vast, vast majority of conservatives already do that. But it's also useful to say for another reason. And the other reason is that the left typically claims that conservatives are homophobes. And that's, again, overwhelmingly false. Meaning, as I said earlier, if you don't support gay marriage and if you support a conservative's right not to participate in gay marriage through his vocation, they'll call you a homophobe. There's nothing homophobic about that. I know plenty of conservatives who do support gay marriage as well, by the way, just to be clear. But if you don't support gay marriage, that's perfectly fine. Now, as the law stands now, the Supreme Court said gay marriage is a constitutional right. Remember, one of the problems that the Supreme Court suffers under is that they treat the Constitution like a coal mine. And they dig and they dig and they dig and they discover a new vein, a new right. that in the last 200 years, nobody discovered. It's, oh, well, it's been there all along. Well, I've read the document. Many of Dave's listeners have read the document. Have you seen anything that says that? No, of course not. So it's make-believe. It's absolute make-believe. Right? And that's how, for example, the, the derivative right to privacy of abortion, I may not have been terribly clear how I said that, meaning the, the Supreme Court first discovered a right to privacy. By the way, I like a right to privacy. Whether <laughs> excuse me, it's in the Constitution is a related but separate notion, but I like the notion that the law reflects a right to privacy. It does so separate from the Constitution as well. And then derivative to that right to privacy, the Supreme Court discovered, I put in air quotes, the right to an abortion. And that's what I'm talking about. Now, whether you support the right to abortion, and I doubt there are many of Dave's listeners who do, but just let's say hypothetically, whether someone in society supports Uh, the ability of a woman to have an abortion or not, I think one is very hard-pressed to actually find it in the Constitution. Again, read through the Constitution. There have been folks that have approached me and others, of course, and they make the claim, well, look at the Constitution. There's no right to taxation. They're wrong. They're wrong about that. Because the original Constitution didn't say anything about taxation, but there's an amendment. I don't remember what the number is. 17th? 12? I don't know. It's not 12. But there's, there's an amendment in the Constitution that says the federal government can tax you because originally there was nothing. So it's one thing to claim there's something not in the Constitution that is. That is the tax example. And then it's another thing to claim the opposite. There's something that is in the Constitution that isn't. And that is, amongst other things, the abortion example. Again, that's not a commentary on whether you support the law, and again, most of Dave's listeners don't, uh, that allows a woman to have an abortion. In other words, not everything is found in the Constitution, folks. If there's a guarantee to something in the Constitution, uh, that's one thing. But if there's no guarantee to something in the Constitution, and people want that, I'll put in air quotes, right, they want that protection, they want something to be guaranteed such that the government or others can't interfere with it, just pass a law. So what's the difference? The difference is if it's in the Constitution, 
you can't rescind the law without an amendment, which is much, much harder than just rescinding an ordinary law. That's the only difference. The difference between the Constitution and an ordinary law is the ability to change it. Otherwise, the Constitution is just a set of super laws, or to be more specific, a set of super hard to change laws. Right? They're not divine, as noble as they may be, as reflective as they are of rights we believe given by God, and we do, they are our human enactment of those rights as we personally and collectively understand them to be given by God. So if we were to change those words, regardless of how that right is inherent divinely, it would not be a right enforced by that state. And by state, I mean government in general. So hey, anyway, Bob, Chris is here. Yeah. Oh, terrific. Well, we have on the line, folks, Chris Corbett, as you know, Chris Corbett is an attorney in the central Arkansas area here in Little Rock, here in Conway. He has, and I mean this, folks, look for it on the road. He has the new Chris Corbett mobile law office. It is the first and only mobile office that you have seen in Little Rock. You cannot miss it. You say, well, did I see it? Maybe I didn't see it. I don't know if I saw it. If you see Chris Corbett's mobile law office driving down the road, it's this supersized Ford van. It's as tall as two people, I think. It's as wide as a crowd. And it's got Chris Corbett's name plastered all around. It's got the Constitution on it. It's got Chris Corbett's wonderful mug on the back with his cowboy hat. You are not going to miss it. If you see the Chris Corbett mobile law office, here's what I want you to do. Honk at him. Honk at him. Let him know that you saw it. I want to hear a whole cacophony of horns when Chris Corbett drives by. Chris Corbett, how are you this morning? I'm doing fantastic. I'm driving the wheels of justice to you. I love it. I love it. Well, that that's the tagline, folks, on Chris Corbett's mobile law office. And what little credit I can take, I always do. And I came up with that line. The rest is all you free. Did. Well, actually... It's fantastic. It's fantastic. (laughs) Let's give credit, by the way, Chris, where credit is due. The overall design of that mobile law office goes to Chris's lovely wife, Susie Corbett, and she put that together. Chris and I offered a few little tweaks, such as the tagline that I put in there, but the overall design came from Susie Corbett, and she did an absolutely wonderful job of putting that together, and she is very supportive, as am I, of Chris running for state Senate come 2022, and so I think we are getting closer and closer to exactly that goal. Chris, I want to talk about an article that I saw. Let me see where this is. In the uh, New York Times, in fact, people often ask me, why do you keep reading that? Where else am I going to get fodder for the Dave Ellswick show? But the New York Times. <laughs> so <clears throat> there's an interesting article in the New York Times about how there's a problem with the admission systems of colleges, how colleges don't let in the best only. It's not what we call a meritocracy. What's interesting about this article, and we're going to go through the article, is that 
the article is largely correct. And I've been saying this all along, right? You've heard me on this show, you, Chris, and Dave's audience has heard me for now years saying that race-based admissions are not only anti-meritocracy, there's a longer word, but I can't say it, so we'll just say anti-meritocracy, but also they harm the very people they're designed to help. So, for example, in law schools, law schools often admit certain minorities with far lower incoming metrics than the general population of the class because they want to have a more, quote, evenly distributed, end quote, uh, racial makeup of the class. And the problem is when they let in people with much lower metrics, those folks are left treading water in the deep end of the pool. That is, they don't have the same level of preparedness as the general population in the class. And so when the classes operate, they operate towards the mean of the class, and those students are left behind. And we see this in the bar passage rates uh, in general across this country and in Arkansas of, for example, blacks versus whites. Uh, And there is a dramatic difference in the bar passage rates. And that, I believe, and others believe, is largely a function of this selective admissions process that heavily weighs race. Well, this author goes on to talk about other non-meritocracy factors in admissions, and I'll, I'll, I'll give away the ending a bit. He talks about legacy admissions, and he talks about athletic admissions. And guess what? And he's a liberal. Guess what? He's right. He's right. I don't defend those methods of admissions any more than I do race-based admissions. Those admission types don't generally pertain nearly as much for law school admissions. That's much more prevalent at the undergraduate level. And I tend to focus my research on law schools. So I don't get into that area nearly as much, but I think it's important to state and make clear if you're for a meritocracy, then you're for a meritocracy. There's no partial meritocracy. The whole notion of a meritocracy is that you rely on merit. Well, there is no, well, I, I, I partially rely on merit. The partial reliance on merit is not merit. Right? That merit means the universal application of merit factors. That's what it means. And so if for some people you don't apply merit factors, that's not a meritocracy. All right, Robert, let's continue this thought after this commercial break. Robert Steinbach is filling in for Dave Ellswick. Dave is on vacation, but Dave will be back tomorrow in the studio. Robert is also joined by fellow law expert Chris Corbett. We'll be right back after traffic and other means of paying the bills. By way, I mean commercials. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. This is the Dave Ellsworth Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave. I did so all of last week, and I'm doing so today. But today is my last day on the line with us, as is often the case, is Chris Corbett, local attorney here in the Little Rock, Conway area. As I was mentioning, look for his mobile office on the road and honk if you see him. Chris, we're talking about how we believe, and I know you share in this view, so I use the plural, we believe that 
students should be admitted to higher education based on merit. And there's a sorting mechanism, meaning it's not as if someone who has lower scores doesn't get to go to college. He just gets to go to a different college. And all of the following factors, we believe, are not merit-based, whether a relative went to the school. It's not merit. Uh, your race, it's not merit. Uh, whether you're an athlete, it's not merit. And so I agree with the left that criticizes two of the three, and I uh, agree with those on the right that either think all of them are inappropriate or at least one of them is inappropriate. What are your general views on whether colleges, institutions that are teaching institutions, should be looking at these merit factors or should be looking at these other non-merit factors? Well, Rob, you, you bring up such good distinctions in this area. And my, my first overall overarching view is where's the what's the future ramifications of this? We want our best and brightest in science, technology, engineering, uh, the arts. Man, we want our best and brightest coming out of these colleges so they can improve our whole way of life. So, uh, you know, it's real simple. And I think it's, it, it's undefendable that we don't want my meritocracy. It's crazy. So when you think about it, it's like the long-term future of admitting our best and brightest. That's what we've got to do. And that doesn't mean we're leaving, we're leaving behind the rest, like you said. Um, and then, then let's get down into minutia a little bit. Let's look at, you know, is this some sort of deception being played on the public? That's what sticks in my crawl. Like, yeah, we're, we're admitting these folks on meritocracy. Not really. When you slow down and look at what we say we are, but in actuality, We've got some other hidden factors that you don't know about. So we've got kids laboring in, in um, high school. They're, you know, they're missing things that they can do with their family, their friends. They're studying at home. They're thinking, i got to do well to get in this college. I'm going to do well on the ACT. And then they find out later that certain people aren't let in based on meritocracy. That's disturbing yeah. to me. That's what's disturbing to me. It's really uh, such a, you bring up such a wonderful point, which I did not yet bring up. And so I want to focus in on that. And that is the more, you know, Rob, Rob, you know, why are you focusing on this meritocracy? It's all make-believe. None of it's real. Really? Really? Here's why it's real. We're not, we're, I'm making up the number, but I'm not terribly off. We're 30th in the world in terms of math and science. Uh, education and advancement. China and other countries are kicking our butt when it comes to math and science, education and advancement. Why? They're whooping because us. You know how they're they whooping us, right? Mm -hmm. They're whooping us, they're, right? They're whooping us. We got to catch up. We got to catch up. And the only way you catch up is by focusing your resources on those who the resources are aptly focused. Now, that is a bit of a tautology, I recognize. But here's the thing. If someone is a, let's say you're someone like me, and you're a skinny guy, and I'm not a fast runner, but I do like to run. And let's say I was a good runner. 
And you say, well, Robert, we're going to put that focus, guy let's in let's the focus weightlifting on, uh, competition. Let's focus on this idea uh, after the uh, 7 o'clock hour or after uh, when we come back around 7.05. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. Our resident law experts, Robert Steinbach and Chris Corbett, are here. We'll be right back with more on the Dave Ellswick Show. Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave today, this Monday morning at, let's check the time, 7.06. On the line with us is Chris Corbett, local attorney, local professional engineer, and owner and operator of the Chris Corbett Mobile Law Office. Look for it on the road and honk at him if you see him. Folks, before the break, uh, we were talking about the notion of a meritocracy uh, for, amongst other things, admissions to higher education. Of course, that applies in all aspects, perhaps, of life or virtually all. I don't know if we have a meritocracy in our families, meaning we don't uh, prioritize our family members based on merit because it's a family unit. But in terms of advancement within colleges, within universities, uh, and within jobs, we believe aptly in a meritocracy. And Chris, during the break, you raised an important point about why historically a meritocracy developed. So a meritocracy developed in contrast to something else. Talk about that for a moment, Chris, because I want to give you full credit for raising that apt point. Chris, did we lose you? Yeah. I was trying to get in my mind. Can you hear me? Yeah, now I can. Yeah. Okay, so I was trying to get in my mind what 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 bothers me so much about somebody not um, a dinner or or being able to or deceptively saying they're a meritocracy when they're not. In fact, they're not. And meritocracy, basically, the gist of our discussion was a meritocracy flies in the face of a ruling class. It's the exact exactly. opposite of the uh, aristocratic society that. You, you get a, the status without having any merit to have that status. And you know, we applied it to business principles. Um, it goes, this goes deep. We want the best and the brightest. And it, and it um, plays into capitalism. Let the market decide. Are you the best? Is this the best product? Who's going to be the electric? Who's going to be the best, have the best electric car? Let the, let, let, let the market decide. Which, of course, becomes let the people decide it's all about yes allowing individuals to make their own free choices and a meritocracy is exactly the same principle of non-discrimination because if you have an aristocracy it says you were not born into the ruling class you don't get these benefits of life if you have a meritocracy it says everybody has an equal opportunity to pursue and achieve these benefits of life and that achievement falls based on merit and 
it doesn't mean that, well, well, Rob, what do I do if I'm, if I'm not particularly good at being a chemical engineer? Well, then what you do is you pursue something else. You can be the best at right. something else, or at least a very good. I don't claim to be the best of anything, by the way. But I think I'm a pretty darn good teacher. And so I pursued it, and I am here doing it. But you know what I'm not good at? Well, the list of what I'm not good at is far longer than the things I am good at. But I'm not good at sports. I like to run, as we've discussed. And I participated in sports in high school and in college on teams, on varsity teams. But that doesn't mean I was particularly good at it. I was competent. But so you don't see me, Rob Steinbuck, as a professional sports player. Why? Because I'm not particularly good at it. Because the meritocracy said to me, Rob, think about doing something else. And I did. I don't take insult at it. I just decided that I'm going to pursue that which I am best at. And to whatever level I can achieve. <clears throat> and so be it. So be it. I, and I'm pleased with the outcome. And whether you're pleased or not, and it, that is a system that gets people's abilities uh, to puts people's reflects upon people's abilities such that they wind up in the positions that they're best suited for. Right? So if you're a lawyer, then presumably you're best suited to be a lawyer versus say being a doctor. Let's say you hate the sight of blood, but you say, but I want to be a doctor, but you still hate the sight of blood. Now these days, Many doctors don't have to see the sight of blood. So let's say you hate the sight of blood, and you say, I want to be a surgeon. Well, that's not a great job for you. But you keep pursuing and pursuing and pursuing it, and you get put in that position not based on merit factors but other factors. I'm highly skeptical. You'd be a particularly good surgeon if every time you cut someone open, you fainted. So that's why <laughs> meritocracy drives yeah. people to those areas in which they are most skilled. And it is a yeah. fairness system uh -huh. that does away, as you point out, with an aristocracy. So everybody yeah. has an opportunity to succeed. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, break, break this down. Your sports analogy is fantastic. Can you imagine if they didn't have an NFL tryout? They call it the NL, NFL Combine. They see who the fastest is. They see who can run the fastest. They see who can uh, shuck and jab the fastest, the quickest. Um, yeah, can you imagine trying to um, take out or, or skew the NFL combine with um, some sort of paper system that hides the fact that they're letting unqualified people in? They would get on the field and get crushed by someone that maybe didn't meet the factors, these hidden factors that these universities are, are using to admit people. Um, I think the sports analogy is fantastic. Uh, well, uh, Chris, then if that were the case, see, what I would do is I would apply to be on an NFL team, and I would say, you see, how many, yeah, quarterback, how many middle-aged, relatively short or average height, uh, very skinny, uh, Jewish guys, do you have as quarterbacks in the NFL? And they would say, well, none. Because it, with those qualifications, I put in quotes, uh, one is hard-pressed 
to be a that combination to be clear or to use the language of the left that intersectionality uh with that intersectionality one is hard pressed to be a good quarterback but i would say oh but you see that's why you need more of us and i get the job of the quarterback and uh hope very strongly that whoever plays the position that protects the quarterback, and you can tell me because you know how little I know about sports, uh, that they do a good job because one hit, and I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> Why? Because I'm not confident. Well, you know, you know, uh, and, yeah. And then, well, here's the deal. There's also another aspect of meritocracy. If your ability's not there, you can work harder. And the harder you work, right, the rewards will be there. So you can overcome – hard work can overcome um, a, a lack of talent. And, and that's where where meritocracy comes into play. That a meritocracy is an incentive-based system. That is, if you want to pursue a goal, you have to work at it. In an aristocracy, uh, the, the prince of England is the prince because he's born into the spot. So you don't have to work at anything. You don't have to be good at it. There's no good or bad at being the king of England. You just is. I know it's R, but it sounds better <laughs> that way, right? You just right, is. Right, right, So same thing here. If we're picking you uh, based on non-meritocracy factors, well, what's the point of working hard to get there? Because we're we're basing on factors that are not related to work. Oh, what... What group were you born into? Okay, look at me. Let me put my hand up. So that's another problem. You're exactly right. It doesn't encourage improvement. And so it's yet another explanation for why we're, say, 30th in the world in math and science when we should or could, should and could, I should say, be one, two, or three. We don't necessarily have to be one but we should be in the top few based on our resources, including our capital resources, meaning financial resources, as our human capital, the people that we have, we should be up in the tops. There's no reason that we're not, other than our lack of commitment to achieving our goals because we take meritocracy too often out of the equation of where we put our people. And by where we put, not through government action, through private action, through the, through the marketplace, not only economic, but the marketplace of ideas. And this is really the tragedy of our country, is we could be so much more advanced, we could be so much more leading the world than we are. And by leading the world, I don't mean dictating to them outcomes. I mean at the front of the pack of advancement right. of science. Uh, you know, if we actually pursued these goals, uh, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, you know, well, in, in that in that vein, there, um, our forefathers that founded this country, they saw fit to put patent and copyright protections into the United States Constitution because they want to promote the progress of the science and useful arts. And if you come forward with your idea in the United States of America, you get a monopoly on your idea through a patent. And they saw this. They want to recognize meritocracy. They want to reward you for giving your discovery over to the public and let the public use it. For disclosure, for full disclosure, you get a limited 20-year monopoly on your idea. And I think 
that's one of the reasons America is the, the, the biggest, baddest country on the earth is because we have written these protections into the Constitution. Let me make one point, Heidi. Let's go to break right after I make this point, if we can. And that point is that the founding philosophy of this country is a meritocracy. Quite literally, we were running away from the English aristocracy. And so this is a core premise of this country. Now, you can reject all that, as the left does, through their goals of adopting neo-Marxism. But I don't want to reject it. I want to embrace it. So I think that is really something to reflect on. Heidi, can we take a break now? Let's do it. All right. So Robert Steinbuck and Chris Corbett are our resident law experts. They are talking right now on the Dave Ellswick Show. They are filling in for Dave as Dave is on vacation, but he will be back tomorrow in studio. We will be right back. We have traffic and news right now on the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck. Filling in for Dave on this Monday morning on the line with us is Chris Corbett, local attorney, local professional engineer in the Little Rock and Conway areas. Chris's mobile law office can be seen around the roads of both locations and in between thereof. So if you see his mobile law office, be sure to honk at him. Folks, we're talking about... Right. You're going to love that on the highway. What, what is it? 40? I always mix up. Is it 40 or 30 that is between Little Rock and Conway? I'm 40. I'm 40. Uh-huh. 40. 40. Yeah. So Chris, uh-huh. Chris uh, drive in from Conway to Little Rock and vice versa on I-40. So be sure to look out for the mobile law office, particularly there on, because it'll stick out. You will see it whizzing by. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> folks, we're talking about the importance for American society, the importance for notions of fairness and equality of having a meritocracy and how the left, the neo-Marxists, are against a meritocracy. Of course, the Marxists elevated class. Now the neo-Marxists elevate race. And basically, if you're born into a particular race, you need to be given a privilege. And if you're not, you need the opposite. So I want to read from this article that stimulated this conversation in the New York Times, written by a leftist. And it's interesting what he does say and what he does admit to, and then what he doesn't say. So we're going to talk about both, because some of his points are 100% valid, because he concedes important points that we've been making here on 101.1 FM, The Answer, and The Dave Ellswick Show for years now. We're not alone, to be clear. But these are issues that we've been raising, and here we have a somewhat, somewhat honest leftist admitting some of the points that we've been making, not others, unfortunately, but we'll take what we can get. Of course, we'll continue into the, after the break. We have a break in a few minutes, and we'll continue thereafter talking about this. So the article begins, for the last several years, I've been disputing overblown claims that political correctness is running amok on college campuses. Given my job as the president of Wesleyan University, a well, well-known to be happily a bastion of left-leaning protest, this probably isn't surprising. So let's start there, Chris, that political correctness is running amok on college campuses is clear. So he already starts out by saying, well, it's not true. It's not true. Well, sure it is. 
Right? We, we talked about at the beginning of the show how this professor at another university has been castigated for u- using the Chinese word that because it sounds similar to, but not the same as the N-word in the context. By the way, he wasn't just randomly using it. He was using it in an, a completely apt context. So he's using this word, yet he gets castigated for using the word that in a different language. The article goes on, but at the same time, I've been actively urging colleges and universities to create greater intellectual diversity by ensuring that conservative voices and viewpoints can flourish along with progressive ones. These might seem like opposing missions, but they're not. You can do both. In fact, if colleges are to maintain their status as places of real learning and growth, they must do both. And that, on that point, he's correct. That is, colleges do not and universities do not do a sufficient job at allowing conservative voices to be heard. One of the reasons that I have applied to teach at my law school, constitutional law, is I think across this country there are insufficient numbers of conservatives teaching constitutional law. And amongst all the classes, virtually perhaps <clears throat> constitutional law is the, is the class in which political philosophy is important because political philosophy bears on the constitutional interpretation of issues the, or the interpretation of constitutional issues. And I think too few Law professors teach the conservative view. I would never teach only the conservative view, but I would teach the conservative view amongst the the liberal and other views of the Constitution. And I think that conservative view is lacking in a full teaching profile of professors teaching constitutional law across this country and here and elsewhere. And that's why I think it's important for me to to seek out that position to give a more complete education to our students. How was your education when it came to constitutional law? You went here to the school at which I teach, in fact, Chris. How was your education? I I do not know the answer to this of constitutional law. Uh, You know, it's an interesting question. It was kind of... uh an un, unwritten, unwritten, um, I mean, I shouldn't say unwritten. It was kind of, if you took the conservative viewpoint, you were kind of looked down upon, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I would, I would, uh, tailor my responses to the professor's political point of view to get a good grade. Right. Yeah. right. And I don't blame you. I did right? it. Yeah. I, I don't blame you because um, that's not the position in which a conservative needs to stick his neck out. Because he's not going to advance in the class that way. He he needs to be able to give the answer that the professor is looking for. And then when he gets out into practice law, he should espouse his own views. But the difficulty is if you can't present your views in a classroom, you can't uh, polish those views and have them All right. at a high well, level. We need, we need yep. to hear uh, right. Rush Limbaugh's views. We need to hear what he has to say coming up. Rush is next, and then we'll be back on the Dave Ellswick Show. This is the Dave Ellswick Show, and I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this Monday morning. This is the last day of my week plus one day filling in for Dave while he's on vacation in Florida. He's, in fact, traveling back 
as we speak. And he'll be back on 101.1 FM, The Answer, tomorrow morning. Uh, and we'll be talking to you on his normal schedule. And I look forward to that perhaps more so than anybody else. So we are talking, Chris, uh, on the line with me, of course, is Chris Corbett, local attorney, local professional engineer in the Little Rock and Conway area. Look for his mobile office, mobile law office uh, on the road. You say, well, how will I recognize it? Oh, you'll recognize it. So, Chris, we're talking about this article written by this liberal at Wesleyan University, which is an uber-left college, no less. And he goes on to say something very interesting. He says, one hears a lot about threats to freedom of expression posed by the intolerant left. And not all of these complaints are coming from the right. Intellectuals who think of themselves as moderate liberals are using their platforms to complain about threats posed by, quote, wokeness, end quote, or, quote, cancel culture, end quote. Those critics do have a point, he says, and he's correct. On college campuses, students sometimes denounce those with whom they strongly disagree as unworthy of being heard at all. That canceling can, can be, but is not always, a problem. Indeed, that's the case, right? It's one thing to see speakers who advocate hateful violence canceled. Not everything is permitted. It's another thing to cancel speakers just because their ideas are unpopular. And that's really the crux here of his article in, in this part of it. And that's so important. We have been seeing, Chris, from the left. You, if you say something we don't like, we're going to cancel you. Of course, the beginning move of this was when, prior to the election of Donald Trump, the left's go-to move whenever a conservative espoused a conservative view, virtually that is, the left would call them racist. And so many conservatives were the Mitt Romney types and they would just, oh, okay, never mind. And they would go and crawl into their holes because they weren't, they, notwithstanding that they weren't racist, once they were called the name, they would run away afraid. And I had been railing against that posture for years to say, don't let people cow you into submission. You need to stand up for what you believe in. And overwhelmingly, of course, conservatives are not racists. Uh, there may be a few amongst conservatives, as there are amongst leftists and others as well. But overwhelmingly, conservative ideology is not racist at all, and conservatives are not racist. And so we need to stand up when people try to cow us with false accusations, false names, and seek to cancel us and persevere and push through and prevent that from happening. What do you think about that, Chris? You're, you're right on it. You're right on it. I just recently saw a blurb with with some um, uh, actors that are African American, and they they came out and and they were afraid. They it even works in the opposite. They're afraid to say, "Hey, I got here by hard work," and um, that's what they benefited from the meritocracy. And um, I mean, you're just right on it. And for for someone to be scared to uh, espouse their their views because they're going to get attacked. Oh man, where where is this country going when 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 that happens out there? And I'm talking about people um the right wing and conservatives um saying normal things and then these 
leftists coming out there and, and then these ad hominem attacks on you personally. How do you how do you prove that you're not a racist? So you have to keep talking, right? I, so you can this in this TMZ environment, right? That's right. That's exactly right. Let me let me continue reading from down, this. Huh? Yeah. yeah, indeed. Let me continue reading for the from this uh, article. The author says similar complaints about this uh, cancel culture that is are also coming now from academics who say they are afraid of being canceled because they aren't fully in accord with the leftist cultural climates of their campuses. I've been saying that all along, Chris, that these universities are overwhelmingly leftist here in Arkansas and across the United States. The linguist John McWhorter wrote in a recent article in The Atlantic that he's received hundreds of messages expressing a, quote, very rational culture of fear among those who dissent even slightly. By the way, who dissents even slightly, Chris? Conservatives. On campuses? Conservatives. Even slightly with attendance of the woke left, end quote. Professor McWhorter describes this as a new Maoism. What did I call it? Neo-Marxism. Same thing. Neo means new, and Marxism and Maoism are similar philosophies. Marx was the founder of communism in the Soviet Union. Mao, the founder of communism in China. And they're virtually identical. Maybe there's some marginal differences. But broadly, they're both the founding fathers of the communist systems in the two biggest communist states in the history of the world. By the way, communism developed only in the last century and largely, but not entirely, unfortunately, died. Now, where didn't it die? It didn't die yet in China. So... Um, he, let me repeat or continue that sentence. Professor McWhorter describes this as a new Maoism because of the tendency to demand public confessions and to adhere to an ideological dogma. I love this apt description about public confessions. This is what we've seen Ooh. happening. We discussed, Chris, yes. Princeton had to come out and say, oh, we, um, we actually we have structural racism today. I've discussed how I understand that various faculty and, and at least one dean here in Arkansas said, I'm a racist because you've got to de- declare this public confession that you are part of the problem. So you are a racist as part of the neo-Marxism. Well, let me let you in a little secret. I'm not declaring that I'm a racist because I'm not a racist. And I'm not going to be bullied in uh, by this neo-Marxism, this neo-Maoism uh, of public confessions. By the way, the, the, the Gestapo did the same thing on the far right, because the far right and the far left coincide. It's actually a circle. It's not a line. It's a circle. And they come back uh, to the same point of totalitarianism. The article goes on to say, he knows, of course, that... Maoism killed tens of millions of people in the name of its dogma. So why resort to this overheated rhetoric, says the author? People living under the Maoist regime had a, quote, very rational culture of fear, end quote, of being deported, tortured, or killed. It seems that the academics who write to Professor McWhorter are afraid of being mocked, vilified, or perhaps of having their careers disrupted. Well, that's, he's downplaying it, that is this author, because it's not only careers disrupted. You know, disruption sounds like, oh, well, you had to go uh, into the bathroom to uh, wash off your face. No, no. Uh, destroyed. <laughs> they have a very rational fear of having their careers destroyed. True, true. They're not going yeah. to be killed. I agree with that. I, you can, right. you can 
demonstrate that contrast, but they have a very rational fear of being fired. What do you think about that, Chris? Well, you know, it, it, what you're you're on it. It, it. This is this is re-education camps. Admit that you're wrong. Apologize. Sign this statement. Okay, yeah, you're not up against torture and gonna shoot you in the head if you don't admit um, your your racist ways. Uh, no, they're gonna hurt you economically. They're gonna hurt your pocketbook, prevent you from earning a paycheck, uh, get you ostracized in society on the internet, on YouTube, or whatever. Um, and and so. Yeah, it's it's a the real deal. People are scared, and and this uh, this this is one of the leftist way of shutting you up. We're gonna cancel you. Um, yeah, we're gonna boycott you. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right on it, Robert. And it's scary. This author, this leftist author, mind you, in this New York Times article goes on and he says. It's no secret that the faculty at most schools lean leans left. To be clear, they don't lean left. That's like saying the Leaning Tower of Pisa has a little bit of a tilt, right? Like if you look real closely, you yeah. can see the Leaning Tower and it has a little bit of a tilt. I think. Yeah, you think? You think? Right? That <laughs> it leans left at a fifty-eight degree angle. That's how it leans left. Indeed, something like ninety to ninety-five percent of legal academics of law professors are liberal that's not leaning left that's entirely left so it's no secret that the faculty at most schools leans left and it's not unreasonable for students and educators to ask how this tilt affects teaching particularly how students are introduced to a broad range of ideas on enduring questions in the humanities and interpretive social sciences That includes law, by the way. So this is a real important point that I raised just before the break. One of the reasons that I have applied to teach constitutional law at the school at which I teach, the Bowen School of Law. By the way, my views are my views alone and not necessarily those of the Bowen School of Law or UA Little Rock or the UA system. But one of the reasons I've applied to teach constitutional law is I believe that law students both here in Little Rock, both here in Arkansas, and both here in the United States, need more exposure to conservative interpretations of the law. And I think conservatives will do a good job at that, as well as presenting the liberal view of the law, because that's the one predominantly already taught in law schools. But I don't think that the left is doing an outstanding job of presenting the conservative views in law school. And so I think we need more balance. And that's a real type of diversity, intellectual diversity, not diversity of immutable characteristics, diversity of ideas. That's what helps people learn. So the author goes on to say, and you'll find this interesting, Chris, and then we'll discuss it. Actually, let me read this paragraph and then uh, ask Heidi to prepare to take a break when I finish reading this paragraph. Uh, At Wesleyan, the author says, in 2017, he called for and then put into practice an affirmative action program for thinkers and courses rooted in traditionally conservative ideas. In other words, affirmative action for ideas, not for immutable characteristics. Not a few students, and uh, not a few students, alumni, and faculty objected to my approach, says the author, as well as my use of the term affirmative action. And we have had intense ar- arguments about it. Such arguments themselves, I like to think, further intellectual diversity. Isn't that interesting? That the left objected to affirm- affirmative action for my minority views, 
but not minority races. Isn't it at least as important <laughs> to have minority views yeah. represented as it is to have minority races represented? With that, Heidi, can we take a break now? Sure, let's do it. All right, you are listening to The Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. Robert Steinbach and Chris Corbett are your resident law experts. They are filling in for Dave today. Dave is on vacation, but he will be back tomorrow. We have some traffic and some other commercials coming up to help pay the bills. This is The Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. I'm Robert Steinbuck filling for Dave on this Monday morning. And don't forget, we'll be on the air this evening from 6 to 7 p.m. as well. During that time, we'll have a conversation with my colleague, uh, liberal as he is, Josh Silverstein, Silverstein. And we're going to be discussing this issue of appointing a replacement uh, for the seat that was held by Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And Josh has some what I would characterize as curious views on what should happen there and how there is this flip flopping going on by both sides, by conservatives and liberals alike on what should happen. And I will contrast his view with mine and vice versa. But right now we're still talking with our good friend. Chris Corbett, local attorney, local professional engineer in the Conway Little Rock area. Chris, we're talking, <coughs> excuse me, about this article in the New York Times by this admitted leftist who makes some good points about a lack of diversity on campuses. And he points out that there's a lack of intellectual diversity, which, as far as I and many others believe, is the most critical type of diversity that you should have on a campus, not immutable characteristics. I don't care what you look like. I don't care if you have a big nose. That doesn't add to the discussion. What adds to the discussion is whether you have a viewpoint different than mine. Because it's really hard to advance a discussion or at least advance one's thinking when you're essentially talking to a mirror. When the person has the same views as you, you're talking to a mirror. So, I look in the mirror and I tell myself how beautiful I am every single day, Chris. I know you do the same thing, no doubt. Well, nobody's, <laughs> uh, nobody in that conversation of me and my reflection is saying, Rob, you really ain't as good looking as you think you are. Well, having someone with a different viewpoint would offer that opportunity. And that's why intellect, by analogy, and obviously I'm somewhat mocking myself in that, but by analogy, that's why intellectual diversity is the real diversity here. So let me read to you this paragraph uh, from the article and then get your thoughts on it. And in the article, the author says, these days when I make a plea for greater intellectual diversity, I'm often asked not about teaching Aristotle, but whether I want to invite fascists and racists to campus. And that's, it's a dodge. It's a red herring, by the way. My answer, says the author, of course, is no. As I've argued before, universities should be safe enough places for all students. But when hearing the call for teaching a broad range of ideas, many students and professors immediately worry about providing a platform for notions parroted by, I'm not even going to say it, he criticizes the, the, the president, uh, meant only to protect the privileges of white supremacy and wealth. So he does exactly what he's critical of. So it's one thing to say we're not going to bring in um, the, the KKK. We're not going to bring in the American Nazi Party. 
But those are such small minority groups, minority in number, obviously, that it's just nonsense to say, oh, well, if you want intellectual diversity, you're going to have to bring in the murderers, uh, the KKK. No, you don't. No, you don't. Let's let's not. This is that again is a red herring. It's a false claim. But the difficulty, <laughs> at least, that is presented in that context is when you let the left decide that. Guess what? As he just fell into his own trap, he says, yep. "Well, that doesn't mean we bring in those who support Trump." Wait, what? You mean a majority of the states, a majority of the electoral college votes? That's not a fringe racist idea. That is a majority view. So that he's demonstrated the own, his own problem. That is, yes, you can ki- keep out the American Nazi Party. Yes, you can ki- keep out the KKK. But you can't then decide that those groups with which you disagree, well, that's the equivalent of the KKK. That's the equivalent yeah. of the Nazi Party. And that's the problem with the left. That's what they do. Yep. What are your thoughts on that, Chris? Yep. It, well, it, it's the common play, and we can give the lesson. We can give the listeners here, Dave's mm-hmm. listeners, we we can give them a tool to handle this. When someone mm-hmm. opposes your view, a moderate view, they're gonna. This is a liberal. They're gonna go to the fringes. All right. They're gonna accuse you of being racist. They're gonna accuse you of. Oh, you, you, if you want to bring in the minority views, in affirmative action on ideas, then. What you're saying is bringing in the KKK, bringing in a Nazi view and a Marxist view. No, They're, they go to that extreme edge to make their point a deceptive point, albeit that hey, we need we need uh, affirmative action, right? No, you don't. Come on. They watch for that. Watch for that fringe argument. Yeah, that's it's the trick, right? Watch for that trick. They're going to try to trip you up. It's it's a it's a false argument. It's a slippery slope argument. And it's a what do they call it? A scarecrow argument or something like that, which is they they put up this false dichotomy. That's not the dichotomy. How about letting Ben Shapiro show up to campus? He's been canceled. Uh, at various universities. That's ben it. Shapiro, That's it. they literally call him, well, he's a Nazi. He's a fascist. He's a, he's a conservative by that, I mean, religiously. Let me rephrase it. He's an Orthodox Jew. He's a highly observant Jew. Are you telling me that a highly observant Jew is a Nazi? Really? Are you telling yeah, me that a highly exactly. observant Jew is KKK? Really? <laughs> Really? Like, I can't, I can't come are, up with a more these are signs, description. right? Yeah, mm-hmm. here's your sign. Right? to be a winner. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. The author goes on. Great point, Rob. Thank you. Uh, the author goes on to say, when I talk about the tradition of conservative thinker, thinkers, I have in mind those who were skeptical of the powers of a central government, as we are, uh, those who felt that a well-ordered society depended on a notion of transcendence, as we do, those who were concerned that even well-intentioned policies to improve people's lives could have unintended consequences that are ruinous, as we've discussed for example, admitting Robert, let's people. continue this yep. quote uh, in the 6 p.m. hour coming up. Robert Steinbach and Chris Corbett are filling in for Dave. He is he's on vacation. We will be back at 6 p.m. on the Dave Ellswick Show. 
Show and I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave at this six o'clock hour. This is the last hour that I'm filling in for Dave during his well earned vacation from 101.1 FM. The answer he's on, he's actually probably back now from Florida and he will be back on the air tomorrow morning and we welcome him back. I am talking as I did this morning uh, with Chris Corbett local attorney, local professional engineer in the Conway Little Rock area. Look for his mobile law office on the road. You can't miss it. If you see it, hunk at him. Uh, Coming up in the latter half of this hour show, we're going to have my colleague Josh Silverstein join us, and we're going to talk about the replacement appointment for the seat now opened up by the sad death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And so, Uh, Look forward to that discussion. In the meantime, Chris and I are continuing the discussion that we had on the morning show, if you listened in then, and and we're covering an article by a leftist in the New York Times who is the president of a very leftist college called Wesleyan, but someone who calls for intellectual diversity at the university level something often lacking right now, and he calls for, using his terms, a type of affirmative action, but an intellectual affirmative action that brings in conservatives. Because as I've said before, the type of diversity that's truly most important is diversity of thought. You know, if you look different than the next guy, but say the same thing as he does, then I'm not sure how you're actually in any way advancing any further the conversation because you have two people saying the same thing. What you want is people saying different things so each can learn from the other. I've learned a lot from liberals. I hope liberals have learned at least something from me. And that's why, as I said in the morning show, I've applied to teach constitutional law at my law school because I think both here and across the country, we need more conservatives presenting conservative judicial philosophy in constitutional law classes in particular, because that's where judicial philosophy is most seen. And I do not believe that on the whole, the left has been doing a sufficient job of presenting the conservative views. And And you might say, well, Rob, why do you think as a conservative, you'd be able to present the leftist view? Well, because the leftist view is all around us. And it's all around us in law schools and elsewhere. So it's rather easy to repeat those views. I hear them all the time. The difficulty for the left is repeating the conservative views because they don't hear them much. They're not exposed to them much, and they don't want to be exposed to them. That's the problem. So there's a paragraph in the article. I read that, and then, Chris, you and I will talk about this. The author says when he talks about a cons- uh, conservative thinkers, he has in mind those who were skeptical of the powers of a central government, those who felt that a well-ordered society depended on a notion of transcendence, and those who were concerned that even well-intentioned policies to improve people's lives could have unintended consequences that are ruinous. He, the author, says he has in mind 
traditions of natural law and of religious belief. I, says the author, have in mind thinkers who point out that theories of how people should organize society often depend on frightening powers of organized violence. So these are the conservative philosophies not sufficiently represented in colleges, not sufficiently represented in universities, and not sufficiently represented from our experiences in law schools. What is your experience when it comes to having conservative views presented to you? I know that you were an engineering major. I think political views are less sort of presented there because whether something falls due to gravity is not affected by one's political views. But you're also a lawyer and you went to law school. What's your view on how well presented conservative views were in law school or elsewhere in your education? Yeah, it's a great question, Rob. And I'll I'll be brutally honest with the listeners. I struggled my first year in in law school, and I, I'm, I was generally a good student. I was admitted to the United States Air Force Academy and um, great SAT scores. But when I got to I got to law school, I struggled. I was coming there as an engineer, and I was black and white. I I trusted numbers. I liked facts. I liked science. And I got to law school, and it was like okay. Um, you need to change your way of thinking. Um, a fact may not be a fact. Um, let's all, you can take a fact and spin it one way, spin it to the left, or spin it to the right. And I gotta be, I struggled with it. I struggled hard with it. So um, it was um, a new awakening, right, for me. Um, not to um, steal the, the this left. This leftist idea of becoming woke, which is, by the way, I hate it. I hate that term because of the improper grammar with it. Um, because I struggle at grammar. I, I was not. Um, I'm not a good writer. I'm a technical writer. Facts. What What do the facts mean? And so I was coming from an engineering standpoint, and I struggled. But it it was a, a um, an endeavor that I enjoyed. And I, I enjoyed the day. And I love getting up in the courtroom. So yeah, it was it was tough um, um, coming from a, a black and white arena, right? And if in that context you're not presented with a broad panoply of views, then you're not going to be able to articulate the conservative views because that's what happens when you're not giving a broad panoply. You're given what? You're right. given the leftist views, and so if you're not presented with some education into the conservative views, what the left is doing is creating an outcome that conservative views will be less successful in court and in the legislature and in society because you haven't honed those skills. If you train all day to be a runner and then somebody says, come and be a weightlifter, well, you're not going to be a very good weightlifter. And the left is training their folks to be runners to pursue leftist ideology, but they're not giving any training in conservative ideology, which in this analogy is the weightlifting. And so we need to have some weightlifting. We need to have some conservative ideology taught when we teach leftist ideology. And by ideology, in this context, I'm talking about 
judicial and political philosophy. Because as you say, unlike in learning engineering, when you learn the law, judicial and political philosophy does matter. It's part of the education. It's part of the exercise. It's part of the ability to be a lawyer. And that pertains the most in terms of doctrinal legal education, the most in the course constitutional law. And that's why I have requested to teach when the opening comes, yeah. which, which, which is predicted to be soon due to retirement, this kind of thing, uh, when the opening comes in constitutional law. So let's see, Chris, what, what's the over-under, what's the bet on whether I get to teach constitutional law given that I have told you and the public that I'm going to present some conservative judicial philosophy unlike what's generally taught across this country. What do you think the over-under? Let's take some bets on that because I don't know the answer to that. But I'm concerned. I'm concerned. What do you think? You're outnumbered, bro. Nine to one. Oh, yeah. You're out, oh, you're outnumbered. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, you know, it's funny. You, you're exactly right. I'm at now outnumbered somewhere around nine to nine point five to one because conservatives are a distinct minority in legal education. Ninety to ninety five percent of legal academics of law professors are outwardly openly liberal. Isn't that a remarkable number? So don't tell me there's not some sort of ideological discrimination going on. There's no way you have such an extreme outcome. Remember, the left says if you have any disparity in racial outcomes, that's racism. But they don't seem to think it's a form of discrimination when you have this overwhelming ideological difference, this overwhelming ideological discrimination between conservatives and leftists in legal academia. What do you think about that, Chris? Well, you're, you're right on it. And, and what we've seen now is we've seen that some Republicans that say they're Republicans are espousing these left, these left um, ideas, these leftist ideas. And they're being exposed. Like, like for, for example, I don't need the protection of the government, right? I, to, for me to trade security for freedom doesn't work. And um, you've got Dan Sullivan from the state legislature. We've got these folks saying, hey, Governor, you're, 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 you're going out of bounds. You're stepping outside. Um, we, we need some of these views to be, to be debated with rather than being shut down because you're scared to be called uh, racist. We need these, these. And I love your sports analogy, right? What we've got going on in universities now is this echo chamber. Um, you've got folks around you that, that aren't disagreeing with you or presenting another idea then there's this echo chamber, and it's not good for society. The long-term ramifications of these kind of things we're seeing now. We're seeing these now from the 60s and 70s. And um, it's not good for the country. It's not good for society. And um, we want people taking risks, and we want people rewarded for taking those risks. The uh, meritocracy. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, let me read a little bit more from this interesting article. Uh, the author says it should go without saying that educators must resist calls for ideological conformity. Learning requires that students and faculty be exposed to ideas they might find offensive, but from which they can learn, and that students and faculty be protected from expressions of ideas that aim at intimidation or harassment. And that's a perfectly apt distinction if it's 
actually embodied. Meaning you can't have people with pitchforks saying they're going to kill you. That's not part of a debate. But if they want to simply present ideologically different ideas, you must welcome them because that's the only way you'll really learn. Sometimes, says the article, the lines of protection won't be clear and there'll be contentious discussions. Well, as with any issue, you know, where is that extreme line drawn uh, can be an issue of debate. But the problem is the left doesn't entertain that debate because they call people like Ben Shapiro, the highly observant Orthodox Jew, a Nazi. Really? Really? Uh, let, me, let me see if I can remember, Chris, because it's been a long time. The Nazis, what was their view on the Jews? They, they liked them. They didn't like them. They didn't like them a lot. They very much didn't like them. Am I getting, am I getting warmer? So this observant yeah. Jew is a Nazi. Hmm. I, I, I think that might break down a bit, right? Uh, the author says 100%. the pragmatist approach, right? The pragmatist approach I recommend works against indoctrination and against prejudice, but it doesn't appeal to a foundational or procedural answer to the questions of how much intellectual diversity or how much free speech one should cultivate in an educational institution. There isn't a single answer that always works. These questions require open-ended conversation in which people can practice intellectual humility as they realize the fragility of their own preconceived notions and knee-jerk responses. And this is the beauty of it. That is, we should be experimenting in education. We should be bringing in different views, not because they're right or because they're wrong, but because we want to examine them. They want to dissect them. And we should be bringing in different teaching methods as well, not because they're right or because they're wrong, but because we want to experiment with them. And you say, well, well then I might get exposed to a, to a process that turns out not to be the, the better of them. Yeah, that's right. And the flip side is you'll also get exposed to a process that is the better, meaning you'll get both. And we will improve and improve how we teach and what we teach when we bring in more methods and when we bring in more viewpoints. And the left does not follow this ideology. This author does, and he's a leftist. But overall, the left says exactly the opposite. We don't like your view. You stay out. He falls into that trap, as we discussed earlier, where he says, well, of course, we wouldn't let in some of the Trumpians. Wait, what? Wait, what? You wouldn't let in half the country? Really? Really? So that's, uh, he, he demonstrates his own uh, frailty or the frailty of his own position, I should say. <clears throat> but in the end, his overarching argument is a sound one. That is the only way students can learn is by not going to a re-education camp, by not going to an indoctrination center, by not going to a madrasa. And that's the problem. Too often, today, <clears throat> our higher education and lower education, by lower I mean K-12 education systems, are largely re-education camps in which leftist ideology is being spewed upon students. And that's All not right, a Robert, legitimate let's education. Continue, yes. Let's continue this thought uh, into our next segment. We have to take a break now. Robert Steinbuck and Chris Corbett are our resident law experts. They are talking, and uh, they will be right back on the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. This is the Dave Ellswick Show. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave this Monday evening during the 6 o'clock hour. 
We've got a few minutes before we take our next break, and we're talking about the importance of ideological diversity in higher education, amongst other places. And, Chris, you had a wonderful comment during the break that I would like for you to share with us in terms of how conservatives react to the presentation of liberal ideology versus how liberals react to the pres- uh, presentation of conservative ideology. Talk about that, if you will, for a moment. Yeah. We were just pointing out the, a fact, and these are facts, folks. Can't, don't be scared of them. But when um, you know, a liberal comes to a campus, they're, they're welcome to open arms, roll out the red carpet. But when a conservative guy comes to campus, there's these protests out there, this, this threat of violence. For a guy, you know, conservative guy or gal coming to to talk about some conservative ideas, and that I don't see. So there's a disparity between this threat of violence. I don't see conservatives throwing out this threat of violence when a, con, when a liberal wants to speak. Um, but but as you point out, Chris, out even even yeah. when the conservatives obviously disagree with the political and judicial ideology of the the leftist who's coming to speak. And they might oppose those views, but they don't do the name calling. They don't excite. Um, they don't try to incite rather violence, but the left does both because those are the tactics of traditional Marxism is the use of yeah. violence and the use of uh, of intimidation tactics to prevent the other side from speaking. Uh, on the whole, conservatives don't seek to prevent the speaking, uh, the, the communication, the ideas being spread. They seek to oppose it. They say, we disagree with you. You have bad ideas. Okay, fine. But then they don't say, you can't speak. You're a racist. You're a Nazi. You can't speak. And then throw rocks. <clears throat> throw Molotov cocktails, uh, break windows, tear down buildings. We've seen all that recently. That is thuggery, Chris, outright thuggery. And I am shocked and amazed that some localities are tolerating that behavior because any mayor, left or right, his priority, his or her priority, should be the protection of people, and the protection of property. And if others are threatening either or both, those people should be stopped immediately. And so we have this false claim that, well, you see, these protests are largely peaceful. You know, it's like saying that the Kool-Aid that they drank in Jonestown that killed everybody because it was laced with cyanide was largely Kool-Aid. It was. It only probably had 0.01% cyanide. But that cyanide poisoned all the Kool-Aid. I'll tell you that. So largely Kool-Aid and largely peaceful means poisonous. That's what it means in both contexts. Poisonous. And, And unfortunately, Rob, this leftist way of of teaching, um, it affected two Ivy League attorneys that just been accused of throwing this Molotov cocktail um, at a New York Police Department vehicle just recently. I did not see that. Um, Is that right? Yeah, there's yeah these two Ivy League attorneys um, in New York have been arrested um, for throwing a Molotov cocktail on a police car. 
And um, I'm, I'm just following up on that. I, I was stunned. But they were drinking the Kool-Aid, right? They, they were you know, indoctrinated by a liberal university. And um, I'll send you the article. But it's two Brooklyn lawyers. Uh, I've been an uh, Ivy League lawyer and Maltop cocktail. It's going to come up. But this pair of wow. Ivy League educated attorneys are, are resorted to violence. These are, these, are, these are attorneys that have been trained to look at the other view, right? It's okay. Where are you coming well, from? Well, that's remarkable, Chris. We're going to end the segment in a, in a moment, but don't kid yourself, and I know you don't, into thinking that part of the reason these folks took that thuggish, awful behavior is because of the overwhelming neo-Marxist leftist ideology that is drummed into their heads in our systems of higher education, in our institutions of higher education. So to the extent that one would argue there's a systemic problem in our institutions, it's the constant indoctrination of leftist ideology. All right, Robert, ideology. we need to take a break. That's a great right. place to stop. We will be right back on The Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. This is a Dave Ellswick show, and I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave on this Monday evening during the 6 o'clock hour. Dave will be back on the show starting tomorrow, so tune in to 101.1 FM, The Answer, to hear Dave's melodious, melodious, melodious voice take over from mine, which is clearly less so. We have on the line, of course, Chris Corbett, local attorney, local professional engineer in the Conway, Little Rock area. Chris hopefully will be running for state Senate come 2022, not this election, but the next election. And look out for Chris's mobile office on the highway if you see it, honk at him. We also have joining us for our conversation for this last half hour is Josh Silverstein, my colleague from the Bowen School of Law. Uh, Josh's views as well as mine are his and his alone, and not necessarily those of the Bowen School of Law, UA Little Rock, or the UA system. Josh, I wanted to talk with you because I thought we had a very nice conversation yesterday, in which you were clearly wrong, of course, right? Um, uh, a, very, a very nice conversation. Let's start out, you know, let's, let's, let's set the floor here, uh, in which we were discussing how both sides have essentially flipped on their positions about appointing a replacement justice when one dies and let's send our heartfelt, and I mean this as a conservative, I mean this heartfelt best, with, best wishes to the family of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She was a public servant for years and deserves a lot of praise for that, even if people like me disagree with most of her judicial interpretations. That's okay. Uh, that's how the process works. In any event, as you recall, uh, Merritt Garland was uh, the replacement offered by Obama at the end of his administration. And the the Senate, and of course Obama's a Democrat, the Senate uh, being run by Republican Mitch McConnell said, we're not going to take up that nomination. It's too close to the election. And uh, we're, we're Republicans and you're a Democrat. Uh, and now... And, of course, the Democrats at times said, that's a, it's an outrage. It's an outrage. We need to have presented – somebody's breathing into the mic, by the way. We need to have presented uh, uh, this nomination for a vote, uh, so please do so. And now when Ruth Bader Ginsburg is, um, uh, has passed, uh, the, the, the left is saying, oh, you can't vote on it. You have to wait till the next election. And the Republicans are saying, well, we need to vote on it. 
The one slight difference <clears throat> for the Republicans is that, of course, the presidency and the uh, Senate is both Republican. I don't think it's a huge distinction. You think it's zero distinction. I think it's somewhat. Uh, but here's where we do disagree. And then I would like you, Josh, to expound on this. Here's where we do disagree. You think that somehow the the flip in position by the Republicans is more dramatic than the flip in position by the Democrats because the Republicans had their way last time. And you think that has a much more dramatic effect on what <clears throat> the Republicans should be doing this time than on the Democrats. And I think both parties have largely flipped their positions, although, as I said, I think the Republicans had a slightly more nuanced distinction uh, given the differences in parties uh, between the Senate and the presidency. So what are your views on this, Josh? That's a really good summary of our discussion yesterday. I think you've captured it quite well. I'll make two points. First, I think at a conceptual level, there's no question that both sides have literally done 180s. That is clear. There's an equality in the sense that both sides have literally done 180s. The reason I think it's a difference is that it's not just about the positions you take. It's about the actual final result of the act. Both sides took particular positions in 2016. The Republicans won. They set the precedent. So you can plausibly argue, as I do now, that the Democrats are not so much changing position as simply following the precedent that the Republicans set. Whereas the Republicans, because it is now politically convenient to them, are switching positions after having set a precedent in which they won. The second point I'll make is that while there were some quotations about differences in political parties and control of which bodies. The majority of the quotes that I have seen from 2016 from Republican senators was that the defining feature of the reason they did not want to vote on Merrick Garland was that it was an election year. Who was in control of which body, mentioned by a couple of people, was generally not emphasized by the Republican senators. And so that's why I don't think who's in control of which institution is significant really here. Not irrelevant, but, but very, very, very minor. The defining feature was an election year. And then on top of that, Scalia at least died in February, whereas Justice Ginsburg died just a little bit before the election. So if anything, the, the argument for not confirming a justice in an election year is even stronger this time around. Some of that, or perhaps all of it. But one thing that I want to raise is, interestingly enough, apparently, Ruth Bader Ginsburg herself was appointed with less time than this replacement would be appointed. So it's not an unusual historical practice to do exactly what now the Republicans are saying they want to do. What do you mean, Ginsburg? one first. No, hold it. Wait, I'm confused. Ginsburg was appointed in the summer of 93 during Clinton's first year after Byron White retired. Oh, example. Um, one of the one of the justices was appointed. Maybe it was Breyer. I, no, I thought Breyer. I thought I heard Breyer was appointed in the summer of 94. Okay, and that would be. Uh, when in the middle of in, in, in the term. middle of in the middle of Clinton's second term of uh, the summer before the midterms. 
well, I'll have to go back and look for that example because uh, I saw on television or in the newspaper, I can't remember, that there was a notable example, but I thought it was from Clinton. So I might be, I'm clearly mistaken as to whether it was from Clinton. But there are examples, apparently, of justices being appointed from within even shorter periods than exist now. But I don't think the issue is overall the length of the period, right? It's whether it's in the election year. And there are a number of examples of that taking place, in fact, even broader than the more narrow one that that I'm describing right here. But the other thing I want to talk about is, and I'll have to go back to get those examples for you. Uh, Tom Cotton, in fact, raised it on the Sunday morning news shows. I think he said that like eight out of nine times uh, that there was a vacancy due during an election year, there was an appointment, something to that effect. The, the other point I want to talk to you about is your claim that, well, if the Republicans won last time, they set a precedent. And so all the Democrats are doing is following the precedent. Their flip in time is not as drastic as the Republicans, simply because the Republicans happen to have won. But, of course, a precedent is only a precedent as long as it's a precedent. So, first of all, to the extent that the Republicans win again, well, then they have changed the precedent. But, moreover, what we haven't heard is the Democrats saying, well, if this is the precedent that we're going to follow, are they admitting that that precedent is proper? Meaning their claim is not simply, well, we're just doing what you said. They're claiming that it is proper. It is morally proper to wait. That's not an appeal to precedence at all. That's an appeal to the underlying philosophy, that which was previously espoused by the Republicans. So if, if what they want to say is, well, we don't think it's right, but this is the rule that you set up, so we need to follow that rule. It's a much more limited claim, and of course, they would have far fewer adherents to that. They're not claiming that. They're claiming they're morally right. So their claim is not merely to precedence at all. What do you say about that? Most of the statements, I'll, dr- I'll dr- address the second point first. Most of the statements that I have seen have actually relied explicitly on the Republican precedent from 2016. As you can imagine, being on liberal email lists, I'm getting bombarded with requests for money and support. And most of the quotations coming from senators, representatives and liberal organizations is highlighting the precedential aspect. They're, in fact, attempting to to parrot the language of Republicans from 2016 and saying this is the precedent that was set. Not all of them. I think you're right that some are making an explicit moral claim, but many of the claims I'm seeing are precedent-based. As for confirming justices in an election year, your first point, your numbers sound largely right to me. I looked up those same numbers in 2016, and those numbers sound largely correct. Of course, those are the very numbers that the Democrats cited to the Republicans in 2016 for why we should go forward with the confirmation of Merrick Garland. And the Republicans said, no, no, we shouldn't go forward with Merrick Garland. The practice will be we can't do this in an election year. Hold us to it, as many of them said. And now the flip. Well, that's where we disagree in the sense that when the Republicans drew that distinction, that's where they articulated that in those cases in which the Senate was of a different party than the presidency, excuse me, 
that the, the history didn't support the Democratic position. That's where they raised that distinction. Now, to be fair to you, I'm not sure how important that distinction is, but that's how they tried to get around those numbers. So either that distinction is relevant then and now, or it's not. Uh, but let's go back, and I'll, I'll let you, of course, address that. But let's wait. Let me just check the time. No, we still have a few minutes. Uh, let's go back to the other point where you said that the letters, emails, etc., that you're receiving explicitly refer to the language that the Republicans used in 2016, and of course. They do. I agree with you. But explicit is quite a different word, quite a cleverly different word than exclusively. Now, I'm not on nearly the number of leftist blogs, etc., that you are and email lists. But tell me, is it exclusively the language that's being used? Because what I've heard is that Democrats are also appealing to the moral claim made by Republicans during uh, the last, uh, excuse me, the moral claims, yeah, made by the Republicans uh, during the, the, the last time, which is that we should let the population decide through voting for the next president. So I think they're making both claims. Of course, you're going to appeal to the language used by the Republicans in 2016. But they're also, I believe, appealing to the underlying moral claim. And if so, they are being morally inconsistent. What do you say about that? So on your first point, I think you basically did a good summary of the various positions on who's in control of which institution. So I don't think I have anything to add on that point. On this latter point, yes, as I said during my last set of comments, there are some Democrats that are explicitly making the moral claim. And that is a, a flip, as, as you described it. Some are focusing on precedent. Some are focusing on the moral claim. And uh, yes, politicians to some degree are inconsistent depending on circumstance. And so, yes, there are some Democrats who are, are making the, the moral claim. It is not exclusive, exclusively a press-based argument. Right. All right, y'all, well, let's take yes. a break. Um, we'll be back uh, with our final segment of the Dave Ellswick Show. Our resident law experts, Robert Steinbach and Chris Corbett, are joined by another law expert, Josh Silverstein. We'll be right back with more on the Dave Ellswick Show, 101.1 FM, The Answer. This is the Dave Ellswick Show during the 6 o'clock hour here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. I am Robert Steinbuck filling in for Dave today, the last day of my uh, subbing in for Dave. Dave will be back tomorrow morning. We have on the line Chris Corbett, local attorney, local professional engineer in the Conway Little Rock area. Also with us is Josh Silverstein, my uh, colleague from the University of Arkansas Bowen School of Law. Before we come back to Josh, Josh did a little research during the break and discovered the issue with RGB's appointment towards the end of a presidential term. Uh, it's, uh, it was during her appointment to the intermediate court, but we'll let Josh complete that thought. Uh, but first, let's go to Chris. Chris, what are your thoughts generally about the fact that we see largely a flip in position uh, by both the Republicans and the Democrats in terms of of whether a Supreme Court justice should be appointed the last year of a four-year term of a president. 
Well, it's a good question. I've enjoyed listening to y'all's debate. And my, my initial thoughts, just gut reaction is, he's still the president. He can't abdicate his duties to, to nominate a Supreme Court justice. And um, so you get, once you get past that, he's got the power to do it. He needs to do it. Why delay it? Um, then it gets into you know the Senate being able to advise and consent. My thoughts are: is there enough time to do that? To um, you know look at someone's history and question them. Um, it shouldn't be rushed. Um, and um, just because it's an election year, though, I don't think that the president needs to be delaying uh, a nomination. So that's my thoughts. Got it. Uh, let's come back to you, Josh. Uh, just give us an, an initial or a brief continuation of my comment regarding the last year of a presidency appointment for RGB. And then let's talk about this threat. And I'll let you, you explain it uh, by the Democrats about what's called court packing. So address both of those points for us, if you can. When Justice Ginsburg was appointed to the Supreme Court, she was appointed in the summer of 1993, which was the summer of Clinton's first year as president after Justice Byron White announced his retirement at the end of the 92-93 Supreme Court term. But when Justice Ginsburg was appointed to the intermediate appellate court, the middle appellate court that's one step below the Supreme Court. She was appointed in 1980 at the end of President Carter's administration. And so I think some of the press reports that I'm seeing are confusing those two ideas that that Justice Ginsburg was appointed in the last year before a presidential election. Yes, but to the lower federal court. And what we're talking about is the Supreme Court. Right, right. Now let's talk about this threat, as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, by the Democrats uh, to pack the court should the president nominate and have appointed a justice before the end of his term. So tell Dave's listeners, what is court packing? What's it mean? And what are the ramifications of this proposal today? Court packing is the idea that we add justices to the United States Supreme Court. Packing just means adding. We'd be adding additional justices to the court. It was trumped by FDR in 1936 and 37 when the Supreme Court was striking down a lot of New Deal programs. His court packing plan failed in part because the Supreme Court actually changed its rulings and stopped striking down the New Deal programs that FDR and Congress were passing. Democrats have become very frustrated with rulings by the Supreme Court recently, say the last 15 or 20 years, and with the way the Supreme Court has been filled, both the Merrick Garland situation in 2016 and the current one. And so there's been talk among Democrats, and really a divide among Democrats, about whether things have reached the point, legally and politically, that we should investigate packing the court again. The concern about packing the court is that it could really undermine the effectiveness of the judiciary, because if the Democrats pack the court now, and add Supreme Court justices to give themselves an advantage, then the Republicans will obviously do the same. And before you know it, we'll have dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of Supreme Court justices, and it will simply be a question of which side is in 
power can add the most judges to get the ruling he wants. So court packing is extremely dangerous. I said, did we, I think we lost Josh. Can you hear Josh on the line any longer? I can hear you guys. Oh, I can hear you. Now you're back, Josh. Now you're back. We had lost you for a moment, Josh. So sure. Please go on about uh, what we just lost you a moment ago is uh, the vicissitudes of having um, conversations over the phone on the radio. But uh, (laughs) tell us about the dangers of having a court packing system. The danger of of a court packing scheme is it could politicize the rule of law and the enforcement of the law, because once the Democrats start adding judges, then the Republicans will do the same. And before you know it, we'll have 200 Supreme Court justices and the rulings from the Supreme Court will simply be a factor of which side most recently added judges to the court. So there are some political scientists and law professors who were trying to come up with a nonpartisan way of changing the Supreme Court, a way that would balance things so that the liberals and conservatives, the Democrats and Republicans, would have the same number of judges. But if the Democrats go ahead and simply add four judges after the election, for example, if they win everything to take a 7-6 lead, then we'll be off to the races and there'll be a real danger that we destroy justice in our society. So, Josh, do you think that if President Trump goes ahead and appoints and has placed a replacement justice for the seat occupied by uh, Ginsburg, that the Democrats, as harmed or hurt as they may feel, should not try to pack the court? Do you think a court packing scheme is a bad idea, regardless of whether President Trump appoints an additional justice? I do think it is a bad idea. I would still oppose packing the court. But while that position has a lot of support within the Democratic Party, my fear is that if the Republicans confirm a replacement for Justice Ginsburg before the new Senate and president are seated, whoever they are, that I will not be able to stop my fellow Democrats from pushing ahead with this. The people who hold my... I hear the music playing, uh, Josh, so I got to cut you off. Thank you all. This is my last day hosting for Dave. Thank you, Dave, and thank you, 101.1 FM, The Answer.